0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 3rd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal judge for the Northern District of Illinois ruled that three former Chicago Bears players may not proceed with their workers' compensation claims in California. Michael Hayes, Joe Odom and Cameron Worrell filed claims for workers' compensation benefits before the California WCAB. The Chicago Bears and the NFL filed a grievance alleging that the players violated their individual contracts by pursuing their claims in California instead of Illinois. The grievance proceeded to arbitration and the arbitrator concluded that the player contracts expressed the party's intent that all workers' compensation claims be brought under Illinois law and before the Illinois Workers' Compensation Commission. In April, the Bears and the NFL filed a motion in federal court to enforce the arbitration decision. The players and the NFL Players Association responded with a motion to vacate the award. U.S. District Judge Elaine Bucklow confirmed the arbitration award and dismissed all of the players' claims. Judge Bucklow said that she did not think that California's public policy was relevant at all. The court noted that the Chicago Bears are located in Illinois, the players played football primarily in Illinois, and that the contracts were signed in Illinois and contain an exclusive Illinois choice of forum provision. Thus, she found that the players have not established any basis for concluding that the agreements must conform to the public policy of California. The court also rejected the players' argument that the choice of forum restriction within the contract is unconstitutional. In arriving at its ruling, the court specifically reviewed the California and U.S. Supreme Court decisions in the landmark case of Alaska Packers Association versus the Industrial Accident Commission of California and said that the arbitration outcome was consistent with both of the Alaska Packers decisions. A claimant with an insidious progressive disease has been awarded TD beyond the five-year time limit. Here's what happened in the case of Jaina Popovich versus WCAB and the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Popovich contracted hepatitis C, arising from her employment as a correctional officer with the Department of Corrections. She was first diagnosed in 1999. In 2000, she filed an application for adjudication of claim. In 2002, The parties entered into a stipulation that she had not yet suffered either temporary or permanent disability as a result of the injury. The stipulation further agreed to extend the jurisdiction of the board beyond the statutory five years. In 2009, she filed a petition to reopen for new and further disability, seeking an award of temporary total disability for the first time. The party submitted the matter to the trial judge on the issue of whether the 2002 Reservation of Jurisdiction allowed for an award of temporary disability more than five years after the date of injury. The workers' compensation judge denied the petition, concluding he had no jurisdiction to award TD benefits more than five years after the injury. The judge said the Reservation of Jurisdiction applied only to permanent disability benefits. The WCAB denied applicants' petition for reconsideration. The Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished opinion of Jaina Popovich versus WCAB, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Labor Code Sections 5410 and 5804 establish a five year limitation period from the date of injury for awards of workers' compensation disability benefits. In the 1986 case, of General Foundry Service versus Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. The California Supreme Court held this limitation period does not apply to an award of permanent disability benefits in cases of insidious progressive diseases which have long latency periods. The WCAB, however, concluded that the General Foundry case did not apply to temporary disability benefits. The Court of Appeal disagreed. Labor Code Section 5412, Define the date of injury in cases of occupational diseases or cumulative injuries. It is that date upon which the employee first suffered disability therefrom. Both parties agreed that Popovich did not suffer a disability until 2010 and thus the limitation period did not begin to run until then. The WCAB, in a second en banc decision, affirmed the inadmissibility of non-MPN physician reports. Last April, the WCAB issued the en banc decision in Elaine Valdez v. Warehouse Demo Services. The case resolved the long-standing uncertainty about the admissibility of the reports of non-MPN physicians. After Elaine Valdez filed a claim for industrial injury, The employer admitted her claim and provided medical treatment with a member of the employer's MPN. Applicant then began treating with a non-MPN physician upon referral from her attorney. The WCAB, in a split and bank decision, ruled that non-MPN physician reports are not admissible when the employer has properly complied with MPN regulations where an applicant has left a validly established and properly noticed MPN and impermissibly sought treatment outside the MPN, the non-MPN physician cannot be the primary treating physician. The MPN treater remains the PTP. Accordingly, the non-MPN reports are not admissible to determine an applicant's eligibility for compensation. Last May, Elaine Valdez filed a timely petition for reconsideration from the Appeals Board on Bank decision, since she was then an aggrieved person for the first time. After granting reconsideration of its prior end bank decision in order to allow the opportunity to further study the factual and legal issues presented in the case, the Appeals Board issued its 18 page split end bank second decision after reconsideration, affirming its prior holding. A number of arguments made on behalf of the injured worker were reviewed, discussed, and rejected. This result is favorable for employers and claims administrators. However, it is likely that the issue will now be taken to the Court of Appeal. It may take months before the appeal process is complete. The WCAB issued another en decision that defines when parties have complied with the requirements to negotiate for an AME before they can move forward to request a panel QME. The new case reconciles provisions of the Labor Code with the Code of Civil Procedure and the WCAB rules. The dates of the significant events in the case of CG Maselli v. Pitco Foods Incorporated are as follows. On January 29th, applicant sustained an admitted injury to his hand. On April 20th, defendant objected by mail to the PTP's opinion and proposed a physician to serve as AME. On April 26th, six days later, applicant's attorney proposed via fax several different physicians to serve as AME. On May 1st, applicants submitted a QME panel request on Form 106, and on May 4th, the defendant also submitted a QME panel request. The DWC Medical Unit honored both requests and issued two panels. The parties went to trial, raising only one issue. Which of the two QME panels is proper? The work comp judge decided that applicant's request was premature and that defendant's panel was timely and the proper one. The WCAB in the N bank decision disagreed and reversed, finding that both panel requests were premature. The labor code provides 10 days following the first written proposal for an AME to agree to the proposed physician before parties may request a panel QME. The Code of Civil Procedure Section 1013 extends a time limit by five calendar days when a time limit is determined by service of a document by mail. Labor Code Section 5316 requires parties to follow the Code of Civil Procedure time limits unless otherwise directed by the Appeals Board. The WCAB determined that the new 2008 WCAB Rule 10507 directs the parties to use different time limits to determine when service of a document becomes effective. Rule 10507 has different time limits than what is specified by CCP 1013 in some situations, such as when a party is out of state. In the present case, however, Defendant mailed its first written AME proposal to a recipient inside of California. So... The extensions of time provided both by Rule 10507 and CCP Section 1013 are the same, five calendar days. The time limit is therefore computed by excluding the first day and including the last, unless the last day is a holiday, and then it is also excluded, and by extending by five calendar days the period for agreeing to an AME. Using these rules, the WCAB determined that the earliest date either party could request a valid QME panel request was May 6th. Therefore, the panels the DWC Medical Unit issued in response to applicants' May 1st request and defendants' May 4th request were not properly assigned and were invalid. And now our fraud report. John Javier Vach, Jr., A former Los Angeles Police Department detective pleaded no contest to misdemeanor charges of workers' compensation fraud and resigned from the police department. The charges stem from an investigation by the Los Angeles Police Department's Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit in cooperation with the District Attorney's Healthcare Fraud Division. Votch, a 15-year veteran of the LAPD, operated two private businesses while out on a disability claim for job-related stress. The defendant purportedly also sought a lifetime disability pension. Under the terms of the negotiated settlement, the defendant was required to resign from the police department. Additionally, Vach must pay $105,000 in restitution and will be placed on summary probation for three years. He is due back in court for sentencing on November 7th. And in medical news, more than 10 million patient records have been compromised in the last two years. And experts say that safeguarding patient information in healthcare records is emerging as a major industry problem. The Department of Health and Human Services mandated public disclosure of any exposure of data involving 500 or more patients. And under this new disclosure law, records show that breaches affecting more than 10 million individuals have been reported in the last two years. And most people think that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Officials say the healthcare industry has lagged behind the corporate world in adopting integrated systems that are designed with security in mind. And many healthcare organizations have applications and data spread throughout departments, creating plenty of opportunities for leaks. The industry is fragmented, with many small, unsophisticated players handling sensitive information without the tools to protect it. When a person's health record is exposed, the implications often go far beyond basic fraud and financial identity of theft. And when a stolen identity is used to gain medical care, it can carry health consequences for the victim, whose medical record becomes corrupted by the thief's own medical data. One solution is a new breed of access control systems that considers both the identity of the person requesting the medical information and the context of the request. An example is the UC Davis Health System that has automated rolling audits of emergency access to catch anomalies. Suspicious behavior is flagged for further manual audit and investigation. As the workers' compensation system comes under increasing strain from the nation's opioid epidemic, some workers' comp payers are taking aggressive steps to try and combat the problem. The opioid problem began with about 20 states relaxing laws that had discouraged doctors from treating chronic non-cancer pain with these prescription painkillers. The trend, which began in the late 1990s, allowed extreme permissiveness in increasing opioid doses prescribed to injured workers. Dr. Gary Franklin the medical director for the Washington State Department of Labor and Industries and a research professor in the Departments of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences and Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle has been trying to reverse this trend. He said that within a year or two of the laws becoming more permissive, he began to notice deaths in the Washington workers' comp system. Washington State eventually introduced measures to curb doctors' prescription of pain drugs in non-cancer cases, and some workers' comp payers also have taken measures to discourage over-prescribing of opioids. Oklahoma City-based Hobby Lobby stores, for example, adopted prescription protocols for flagging and scrutinizing claims involving opioids. Hobby Lobby's aggressive efforts have included bringing in pharmacy benefit manager experts to help educate the employer's in-house claims management staff. The company also coordinates with its third-party administrator to prevent drug abuse, identify claim problems before they escalate, and hold injured workers and doctors accountable. And in regulatory news, the WCAB has set a hearing on the suspension of a lien claimant hearing representative's right to practice. The allegations claim that while Daniel Escamilla was acting as a hearing representative for various lien claimants, he has been repeatedly sanctioned for engaging in bad faith actions or tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. The notice alleged numerous examples in different cases over the years. For example, Mr. Escamilla was sanctioned $750 plus costs and fees in 2003 for willfully executing, verifying, and filing a successive, untimely petition for reconsideration that was frivolous and without merit. Mr. Escamilla was sanctioned $500 in 2006 in another case for essentially the same reasons. In 2007, Mr. Escamilla was ordered to pay defendants reasonable costs and fees for willfully executing and filing a frivolous petition for removal that mischaracterized earlier decisions of the Appeals Board and the Court of Appeal. Other similar examples in several different cases were noted by the WCAB notice. As a result of this history, the notice says that it has become apparent that sanctions are ineffective in causing Mr. Escamilla to conform his conduct to the appeals board rules of practice and procedure. A hearing on this issue is scheduled to commence at 8.30 a.m. on October 28, 2011, before the Honorable David Hetick at Hearing Room Two, Second 2nd Floor, 455 Golden Gate Avenue, San Francisco, California. Judge Hedick will act as hearing officer for the appeals board to receive evidence and arguments regarding this matter and he will prepare and submit the hearing record to the appeals board for its consideration and decision. And in financial news, negotiations between Nevada-based Employers Holdings and the Israeli-based parent company of Guard Insurance Group of Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania have ended. In August, Employers Holdings had submitted a non-binding offer of $312 million to buy Guard Insurance Group. In a September 27th Securities and Exchange Commission filing, employers reported that its potential acquisition of Guard has been withdrawn and that discussions have ended. A press release issued by Guard confirmed the end of negotiations. Had the deal gone through, it would have been the second sale of Guard within five years. Guard Insurance was sold by the founders in 2007 for a reported $135 million. At the time, the company employed nearly 300, most of them working at the company's South River Street headquarters. Guard now serves 47,000 employers in 28 states, up from 33,000 employers in 2005. The company wrote $242 million worth of premiums in 2010. Guard was initially a Pennsylvania-based carrier with expansion into Maryland in 1986, the New England region in the 1990s, followed by expansion into the Southeast, Midwest, Florida, California, Alabama, West Virginia, Texas, and Mississippi. Guard is licensed in all non-monopolistic continental states. And in other news, it is with great sadness that we report the passing of former presiding judge Larry M. Greenblatt. Our unconformed information was that he was recently diagnosed with a brain tumor, which led to his death. Judge Greenblatt retired in 2006 when he was last employed as the presiding judge of the Oxnard District Office of the DWC. His career in workers' compensation includes employment as an attorney with the State Compensation Insurance Fund and his private practice in Thousand Oaks, California. He then became a trial judge at the Van Nuys Board before being assigned to the position of presiding judge at the Ventura and then the Oxnard Board. After his 2006 retirement, he returned on occasion to Southern California boards as a judge pro temp. Some local attorneys were asked what they remembered about Judge Greenblatt during his long career in the industry. One said he had a fondness for horses and was always concerned about the injured employees as opposed to tolerating litigation games. He was always fair and had a gentle demeanor about him. Another remembered that he was a huge Dodger fan. His colleague Judge Brotman was a huge Yankee fan and that made for lively discussions at the board. Another said he loved horse racing and other sports, and he also loved a good joke. One attorney recalled that he was a former star player for the UCLA baseball team and an avid UCLA alumni. Many remember how proud he was of his daughter and her accomplishments, especially in gymnastics. Everyone agreed that he will be deeply missed by his colleagues, coworkers, and friends. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.